Well, let's uh, begin this morning by uh, reading our text in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 to 10 today, but let's start reading at verse 1, and we'll read, we could really read all the way to verse 16, but let's just read to verse 13. So Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1, this is the context here. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we'll stop there. As we've seen for the past few weeks, this section is about unity. Unity in the church is important to God. It's important to the Apostle Paul, and it should be important to us as well. Walking worthy of our calling means Walking in unity. And last week we saw that unity is founded on our common salvation. One God saved us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three mentioned there in verses 4 to 6. We share one salvation, there's one body, there's one hope, there's one faith, and there's one baptism. But now Paul switches in verse 7 to speak about another component of our unity, and, and that is our diversity. Our diversity also contributes to unity. You see, we are all saved by the one God, but we are all unique. We are all gifted differently, and we all serve together, but we serve in various ways with various gifts and abilities. But far from dividing us, this diversity actually unites us and helps us to grow into the one faith. Paul has this understanding of the body of Christ where each member, each part of the body serves and, and, and it causes the growth of the body. It causes us to grow together into Christ-likeness. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to study this section that kind of focuses on our diversity, 
all the way to the end of verse 16. But today our focus is just going to be on verses 7 to 10. And this is almost like a little bit of an aside or a, an introduction as Paul kind of shifts gears to our diversity. Paul is, is beginning to, to switch from speaking about our unity to speaking about how our diversity also contributes to our unity. And as he transitions, he puts the emphasis on Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who gave grace to each one. Christ has given gifts to each believer and he has placed us where he has placed us in the body. And if we're going to be unified as we serve together in various ways with various gifts, we need to recognize who it is who gave us these gifts and who put us where he put us in the body. You see, another way to maybe say this is that the Lord is the center of our unity. The Lord is the center of our unity. And in this text, Paul lifts his gaze, if we could say it this way, he lifts his gaze above the horizontal and above the earthly, and he lifts his gaze up to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see Jesus as the giver of gifts, and he has given grace to each one. And then in verse 11, he gave men. And so he gives gifts to men, and then he gives men as gifts to the church, and their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and then all together we do the work of the ministry, which causes the building up of the body of Christ. But we're not going to get all the way to verse 11 today. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherd teachers, pastors who teach, these are all gifts from Christ to his church. And so the whole body is connected to Christ. Each member serves Christ and together we grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which I I like to say it is until we are utterly Christ-like in every action and reaction. And so what we'll see today is that true unity is found in Christ. And really today, we're just going to be looking at him, focusing on him. I I called this message, The Lord of Unity. The, The series is called The Worthy Walk. And so this is The Worthy Walk, The Lord of Unity. And what we'll see as we look at this is four glorious characteristics of our Lord Jesus Christ in this text. Four glorious characteristics of our Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, our Lord is a gracious giver in verse 7. Verse 7, it says that, um, verse 7, it says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then in verse 8, we're really going to be looking at Psalm 68, 18, and we're going to see that our Lord is a conquering king. Our Lord is a conquering king, and we're going to go and, and look at what's going on there in Psalm 68. Then for third, we're going to see that our Lord is a rescuing redeemer. He is the one who descended to the lower regions of the earth. We'll talk about that. And then fourth, we'll see that our Lord is the risen ruler in verse 10. The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill All things. And so that's what we're going to kind of look at today. First of all, in verse 7, our Lord is a gracious giver. Our Lord is a gracious giver. Again, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Now the word but there is a, is a bit of a contrast. There's a contrast between the unity that we were looking at to now seeing how each of us is different. And so we go from our, our corporate unity in one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, to individual diversity. But grace was given to each one. Individual diversity. Each one of us has been given something, and no Christian is excluded from this. Each one has been given a different measure of grace. Each one has received grace. Each one has received gifts of grace from our Lord. And we typically think of these as spiritual gifts, and and I think we do rightly so. Now in verse 11, again, Paul's going to mention some of these gifts that apostles and prophets Those gifts ceased after the apostles and prophets wrote the New Testament. And the gift that came through them, the word of God, remains for us to this day as a gift from those men. So those men were a gift to the church. And through them, we have the word of God that remains a gift to us till today. But the supernatural gifts like apostles and and prophesying and healing and um, speaking in unlearned languages, which we typically call tongues, all of those seem to have ceased around, uh, to have, yeah, to have ceased around the same time. But even to this day, Christ gives gifts to his church. And in verse 11, we see again, we see evangelists and shepherd teachers, I think is how the ESV translates it. Shepherd teachers. Pastor teachers, we often talk about it. But each Christian has been given grace gifts by Christ to serve the body. Now, other scriptures teach the same thing, but as we look at them, we need to remember that these books were written at the time that the supernatural gifts were operating. And so I, I, want, I want to kind of just talk a little bit, look a little bit at spiritual gifts. And I don't think we've ever really done that together as Grace Bible Fellowship. And so let's, to begin, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter divides the gifts nicely and simply between speaking gifts and serving gifts. If you look at verse 10 there, it says, As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now Peter here says as well that each one has received a gift. Each one, therefore, should use it for the glory of God. And so if you speak, make sure you speak God's word. And if you serve, serve by the strength which God supplies. And note the purpose there that Peter gives in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so we're all given gifts and we're to steward them. We're to be, we're to, we're to use them. We're to manage them for God's glory. Christ gave them to us and And he gave them to us that we would glorify him by using our gifts. And note there that God is glorified 
through Jesus Christ as we use our gifts. In other words, there's this recognition there that these grace gifts come from Jesus Christ. And so when we use our gifts, God is going to be glorified through Christ because those gifts came to us through Christ, just like our text says in Ephesians. Now the word there in verse 10 translated gift is charisma, and there's a connection there between the word in our text. The word in our text is grace was given. Grace is charis. And so this is charisma, charisma. And the way that this works is these gifts are a result of grace. See, God's favor to us gives us these gifts, these spiritual gifts, and, and it's, it's a favor to us. The, the gifts are a favor to us and they're to be used for others. And so, the, the, the really God's favor blesses the whole body as all of us are gifted in different ways to serve the Lord. Now let's go to a, another passage on spiritual gifts. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I believe we read through this whole passage a few weeks ago when we were talking about church membership and our responsibility to serve in the church, but we're just going to kind of look a little bit here at 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 4. Paul says here, now there are varieties of gifts, and that's that same word charisma. There's a variety of gifts. Speaking about these spiritual gifts, there's a variety of them, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now throughout this section, Paul attributes these gifts to the Holy Spirit, but there's a a Trinitarian reference here. Notice that, that in verse 4, it's the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, it's the same Lord. In verse 6, it's the same God who's working. Then verses 8 to 10 list various supernatural gifts that were given in those days. And then if you skip down to verse 11, it says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now notice again that spiritual gifts are distributed to each one. And I can't help but point out here whenever I look at this text that they're not distributed by the measure of your faith They're not distributed by trying to work them up in an emotional kind of frenzy or in any other way. They're distributed just as the Holy Spirit wills. And so if the Holy Spirit wants us to have a particular spiritual gift, he is going to give us that gift according to his will. Now back again in our text in Ephesians, these gifts are said to be given by Christ. And so when one member of the Trinity works, the other members of the Trinity are there working as well and supporting as well. And so as Christ gives us these gifts, they're also empowered by the Holy Spirit, by the one and the same Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit really are all working together to bless us with these gifts, to favor us with these gifts for the church. If we go now back a little bit more to Romans and look at chapter 12. This list here in Romans 12 of of spiritual gifts would be more in line with the kinds of gifts that we would see 
happening in the world and in the church today. Romans 12 verse 6 says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, all of these passages are very similar as we look at them. We all have differing gifts, and we're to use them for the benefit of one another, for the good of the body, and for the glory of God. And this also implies, then, that we should allow others to use their gifts for our benefit. Sometimes we just think about us using our gifts for others' benefit, but also we should accept the gifts from others as a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ. That as, as they serve in the ways that God has gifted them, we should receive it eagerly and thankfully. Now let's go back to our text in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And again, these gifts are given by Christ. Each one of us has a measure of grace that was given to us by Jesus Christ. And the idea is that Christ measures out to each one a particular gift of grace. And he kind of designs it and plans it and measures it out to each person. And because these gifts are from Christ, the shepherd of our souls, the head of the body, we know that the grace gifts that he measured to us are exactly the ones that we need and the ones that we can handle. And we can also trust that our local body has been given the gifts that we need to best serve and honor the Lord. Each one of us then is responsible to God to use our gifts for the benefit of one another. You see, you are the only person in Grace Bible Fellowship that has the unique combination of gifts and abilities that the body needs. And so we need one another. Now, sometimes people ask me, well, how, how can I know what my spiritual gift is? And sometimes we really struggle to kind of figure out what is my spiritual gift. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I've ever told it here, but I, I, when I was a very new Christian, brand new Christian, I was at some kind of seminar, some kind of a, one of these spiritual gift seminars. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, it's kind of this fill in the blank thing or kind of like on a scale of one to ten, how excited are you about mercy and how excited are you about giving and how excited are you about teaching and and I was just so excited about everything just this newly saved I'm just like 10 10 10 10 like oh I'd love to help someone in this situation I'd love to help someone in that situation I'd love to do this and that and so I I I just checked off every box on this thing and I I tally this thing up and it's like it's high like 10 10 10 9 10 and uh, the guy beside me looks over and he's like, wow, dude, you're gifted. <laughs> now, I just think that's, that's hilarious because that is not, that is not really how it works. And, and, uh, and, and honestly, if you, if you did a little test like that and you came out at the, at the high end of the mercy giving, you know, the, the mercy gift, what, like, what are you going to do different anyways? Are you going to, you know, if you have the gift of mercy, you're going to just show mercy. If you have the gift of administration, you're going to 
want to administrate things. You're going to want to organize things. You know, if, if you have these, these different gifts, you're just going to naturally notice things that other people in the body don't notice, and you're going to want to do those things because you're gifted and equipped and passionate about doing those things. And so I think the best way to, to figure out your spiritual gifts is just to serve in the ways that you notice and that you see need. And also, I think a, a little bit of admonition on, on the spiritual gifts thing don't, um, you, you know, they, they can be a blessing and a curse. You know, like I, I can look out and I, I'm a bit administrative. I'm not, I'm not like the super high-end administrative like some people are. But uh, when I see things are disorganized, it really, it really bothers me. And so I might be bothered by some other believer who's not very organized when, when what really should happen is I should just try to help that believer or that ministry organize itself in a, in a good and godly way. And the same thing with, you know, maybe the gift of mercy is in my mind because we just read about it. But if you have the gift of mercy, don't be annoyed at other people that aren't showing mercy the way that you do. Just show that mercy and use your gifts in the way that God has equipped you to use your gifts. And so I don't think you need to struggle too much about what are my gifts and how should I serve. Just look for ways to serve the body and, and God will naturally kind of develop that in you. And then the other thing I would say is that it's also helpful to get some outside kind of confirmation of your gifting. Because sometimes we could think that we're gifted at something, but everyone else is going, e, you should just like stay away from that, brother. And, uh, and so sometimes we need a little bit of, of outside admonition just because you, you know, just because Let's just use me. Just because I think that I'm gifted to teach doesn't, doesn't mean that I am. Like I, I need somebody to kind of go, yeah, hey, I was, I was edified or I understood what you were talking about. Um, you know, some other, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to leave that. I got, I got Steve Lawson in my mind. Steve Lawson once said, you know, if you, you know, if you got two sparks kind of hitting in your brain or if you can't string a sentence together for the life of you, then you probably don't have the gift of teaching. And, and so, um, Anyways, that's kind of, so some inside desire to serve in that way and then some outside confirmation that will show you um, the best way that I know how you should serve in the body. But if you're not involved in ministering to the body, you're, you're not being a good steward of what Christ has given you. And when I say involved, I don't mean serving necessarily in some official ministry, but being involved in the lives of others. That's ministry, and that's what we're called to do. And we'll, re- we'll really see that more next week when we get into verse 11, 12, and 13. So each of us have different opportunities for involvement. For some, it might be all that you can do to, to serve on Sundays. The, the, the only day that you have some free time to serve and minister would be Sunday. And then I would say use Sunday with all your might to the glory of God. Others might have all kinds of free time and, and, and ability to, to meet together with other believers during the week. And you should use that for the glory of God. Whatever your station of life is, you want to serve the Lord in the church the way that he has given you the opportunity and gifting to do. And so be a good steward of what Christ has given you. Another thing I would say here, and I want to point out, is that there should be no jealousy within the body. If other believers are, are more gifted than us, or if they have different gifts than us, they have been, they have, those believers have been given to us by Christ for our benefit. 
And each one of us is only responsible for the, the gifts that God has given us to use them for the benefit of the body. The more gifted you are or the, the, the greater maybe gifts that you have, the greater your responsibility to be a good steward of those gifts. And so we should be thankful for whatever level of gifting that Christ has measured to us. He has wisely given us exactly the amount that we can use for his glory. He is a gracious giver and he has graciously, graciously given the measure of grace that is going to be, make us the most useful to him and to his church. And so we want to recognize Christ as a graceful giver, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The second glorious characteristic of our Lord Jesus Christ is that our Lord is a conquering king. And we're going to see this in verse 4, which again is really just Psalm 68, verse 18. In verse 8, Paul quotes from or alludes to Psalm 68. It says there in verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this allusion to Psalm 68, and you might want to open your Bible to Psalm 68, but maybe keep your uh, your ribbon here in Ephesians chapter 4. This allusion to to Psalm 68 has troubled scholars in many ways, and we're not going to get into all of that today. Psalm 68 itself is one of the more difficult psalms to interpret. In the first sentence of his commentary on Psalm 68, Alan Ross said this, quote, Psalm 68 is a complex psalm that has baffled commentators for some time, end quote. Frank Thielman in the uh, commentary of the New Testament use of the Old Testament, again in his first sentence on Psalm 68 says, quote, Psalm 68 is notoriously difficult both to outline and to place in any specific historical context. Scholars often rank it among the most difficult psalms to interpret, end quote. The other difficulty here is that when Paul quotes this or alludes to this, he actually changes the text in a, in a bunch of ways. I'm not going to give them all to you, but Ephesians 4 and verse 8, look at that. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. But if you go to Psalm 68 and you look at verse 18, it says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Well, Paul's not trying to quote this text word for word, obviously. What he is doing, at least what he's doing in my opinion, is alluding to this text and telling us that Christ is the one who fulfills it in greater ways. And it's really, truly a remarkable thing that's, that's happening here as we look at this. You know, this psalm, Psalm 68, is really about God triumphing over his enemies. So we're just going to look at Psalm 68 for a bit. Look at, uh, in my notes, it's verse 0. Look at the superscription there, to the choir master. A psalm of David, a song. I, I believe that the superscriptions are part of Scripture. They're at least as ancient as the Scripture is. Every text that we have um, in existence has these superscriptions. And so it's to the choir master, it's a psalm of David, it's a song. Verse 1, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. 
As smoke is driven away, you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. So the wicked are going to perish when God arises, but the righteous are going to rejoice. Then verse 4 calls on the righteous to sing praises. His name is Yahweh, it says, exalt before him. Verses 5 and 6, God helps the fatherless and the widow. He helps the lonely and the prisoners, but the rebellion or the rebellious are going to dwell in a parched land. Verses 7 to 18 trace the, the journey from Israel, from the wilderness outside of Egypt, all the way to Sinai, and then from there, all the way to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where the, where the temple was eventually built. And the focus on all of this is on God himself. God is the one who made the journey from Egypt all the way to Mount Zion. And so God is kind of pictured as this triumphant king marching victoriously from Egypt all the way through Sinai, all the way to the Temple Mount Zion. And when you think about that, that kind of journey, and you think, well, well, what, what happened in that journey? You'll remember that there was a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night that led the people on that march. And so God was with his people. And the psalm pictures God as this military victor marching victorious out of Egypt all the way to Jerusalem where the temple was built. And verse 7, Psalm 68, verse 7 says, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah. Now verses 17 and 18 are really the climax of the psalm. And they picture God ascending on high to Mount Zion with a host of captives. In other words, he has, he has conquered his enemies. He has captured them in this military victory and he's, he's marching them as, as the ancient rulers used to do. He's marching his prisoners before him all the way to where he's going to sit on his throne in Mount Zion. Look at verse 17. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Again, God has conquered his enemies. He has plundered his people's oppressors and he has received gifts from the rebellious. He has, he has, uh, plundered the the bounty if we could say it that way he is he has plundered the people there giving him gifts and then the psalm from there switches and it it seems to look forward to a future day when the nations are going to bring gifts to God in Jerusalem this then is pointing forward to the millennial kingdom when when the messiah is going to reign over the earth from Jerusalem and so if you look at verse 28, for example, it says, summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. In verse 31, nobles shall come from Egypt, 
Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, Selah. And so the nations are going to worship God. They're going to stretch out their hands to God. And they're called to sing praises to the Lord. In the last verse of the psalm, God is pictured again as the king who conquered his enemies. Now he's in his sanctuary. He is the strength of his people. Look at verse 35. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Now Paul, in our text, of course, alludes back to verse 18. Look at it again. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Of course, Paul doesn't quote that last little bit. But Paul doesn't quote it exactly. So if you go back and look at it in Ephesians again, Paul has it referring to Christ. It says, when he ascended on high, and of course the, the antecedent of he is, is Christ himself. When Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And so instead of you speaking to Yahweh, speaking to the Lord, Paul has he, meaning Christ. And what Paul is doing then is that he is telling the Ephesians that Jesus is God. He is equating Jesus with God. In fact, Psalm 68 uses almost every word imaginable for God. It has Elohim, which is God, in verses 1 to 8. It has Adonai, which means Lord or Master, in verse 11. Adonai is also how the, the Septuagint translates um, they, they kind of use the word Lord for Yahweh there, and so there's kind of a bit of a connection there. Adonai means Lord or Master. That's in verse 11. In verse 14, it has Shaddai, uh, which means Almighty, and that's the shortened form of El Shaddai, which maybe you've heard about, which is God Almighty. El is the shortened form for God, and Shaddai is, again, Almighty. And so it has this, this form of Almighty. In verse 16, it calls uh, God by his covenant name, Yahweh, which is in our Bible's capital L-O-R-D, which is uh, Yahweh, the, the Lord, the covenant name of God. Verse 18 has Yah Elohim, a shortened form, Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. We saw that in our scripture reading. David today was calling God the Lord God, Yah Elohim. But it mostly, the Psalm 68 mostly just speaks directly to God and just says, you, 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 you. But Paul doesn't speak of God. Paul speaks of Christ. And he doesn't say that God ascended. He says that Christ ascended. And again, he's equating Yahweh from Psalm 68 with Jesus Christ. And instead of conquering his enemies and gathering captives and receiving gifts, Christ conquered his enemies and freed the captives. And instead of receiving gifts, Christ gave gifts according to Paul. Christ then is pictured as a greater conqueror. Christ is the strength of his people, the conquering king. He is 
God in human flesh. And I think that's what Paul wants us to see by the way that he quotes Psalm 68, 18. And so when we kind of see this and we recognize the, the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ in this moment, that he is God in human flesh, he is the conquering king, he's even the greater conqueror, he has achieved a greater victory than God did in the, the deliverance from Egypt. There's a, there's a greater exodus that's happened, there's a greater king in the Lord Jesus Christ, and a greater victory has happened through him. And that context then should really raise this in our minds, what Paul is saying about these gifts. See, the, the conquering, triumphant king of the world has overcome his enemies. And he has nothing to receive from them. And they can give him really nothing that he desires. And so instead, he himself gives gifts to his people. He gives gifts to men. And then he gives those gifted men to his church as gifts to his church. And everyone is gifted and incorporated into this body of Christ. Well, before we get too far ahead, then look at, go back to Ephesians if you're not there already and look at verse nine. And what we see here now is that our Lord is a rescuing redeemer. Paul continues applying Psalm 68 to Christ and he starts commenting here on on the fact that he ascended in verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And so Paul makes a logical deduction. If Christ ascended, he must have first descended In Psalm 68, God descended to rescue Israel from Egypt, to lead her through the wilderness, to deliver her from her enemies. God descended to conquer his enemies, and then he ascended into the temple. And Jesus, Paul says, also descended to conquer his enemies, but there's some debate here on where he descended to. The text says literally, into the lower regions of the earth. Into the lower regions of the earth. Well, where did Christ descend to? What, what is the lower regions of the earth? That word lower there is only used one time in the Greek New Testament. It's a, a very rare word. And it makes a, a comparison. There's a comparison happening. And the comparison is between the lower parts, which is somehow connected to of the earth. And there's, there's three views on this. And I thought, I, I'll give you the three views. I've, I've cut out a lot of, views and and interpretations and stuff out of this, but I'll I'll give you the three views on this one. Some of the church fathers thought that that they just kind of thought this made a very straightforward comparison, and, and they took it this way. They took it as meaning lower than the earth. And then they asked the question, well, what's lower than the earth? And they said, well, it must be Hades. The, the place of the dead. And so they, they tied this to their understanding of 1 Peter 3.19, where it says, in which Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And so they understood this from this, that, that Christ went to Hades to preach to the evil spirits, and that's kind of how they understood that text, and I, I don't think that's the best view. Nowhere in Scripture, except for if, if it's here or in First Peter, does it teach that Christ went to Hades to preach. 
Christ conquered on the cross. His work was finished on the cross, not in Hades. And so I I think that's a a bad view of what's happening there. Another view of this is that the, the comparison is not between the earth and the lower regions, but that the earth actually is the lower regions. And that's actually the way that we see it translated in the, the ESV. It says there in, in our translation, it says that he had also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. And what that would be referring to then is that, that the incarnation, that Christ descended to the lower regions, Christ descended to the earth, he came down to this world and became a man, which of course is True. But another view, a third view, I think is actually a little bit better. A third view sees the descent as referring to the lower region of the earth, which would then be the grave. Jesus was buried in the grave. And so the descent would include the incarnation that he came to this earth, but then he was, he went even further down in that he was buried in the grave. He was buried in the tomb. And I think that's really the best view, both grammatically and theologically. Christ descended to the earth in his incarnation, and he humbled himself all the way to the grave. Christ descended. He descended from heaven, and he did this to conquer his enemies. And this really is the the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, God himself, God the Son, descended to earth, not like the Father did in the Old Testament with thunder and lightning and a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. When Christ descended, there was no smoke, there was no fire, there was no sound of a trumpet. The earth didn't shake when God descended like it did when when God descended upon Sinai. Jesus descended, taking upon himself a human nature, adding to his divine nature a human nature. And he was born humbly in a manger. In human weakness, he was born and, and, and his, his humanity veiled the glory of his divine majesty. And his enemies, the enemies that he came to destroy were of a different nature than the Egyptians or the Canaanites. He came to put away death for all time. He came to destroy sin and the works of the devil. And for 30 years, he overcame temptation as a man, never giving in to sin. For 30 years, he lived a perfectly holy and righteous life as a man. And he died on the cross just as he had planned before the foundation of the world. He died to bear in his body the wrath of God for our sins. And by dying in our place, he conquered sin on our behalf. And so by his death, he conquered Death. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus shared in our flesh and blood. He took on a human nature so that he could save us from death, that he could save us from the devil, that he could save us from our sin and reconcile us to God. 
And those who trust in Jesus Christ no longer have to fear death because Christ paid for the penalty of our sins so that when we die, we can be taken immediately into the presence of God to live with him forever. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 6.23 Jesus has conquered our greatest enemies. He is our rescuing Redeemer. And that's what Paul is pointing to when he says that he descended in verse 9. And now finally in verse 10, Christ is our risen ruler. Christ is our risen ruler. Verse 10 says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And this is a reference then to Jesus' ascension into heaven after he descended to the earth and died and rose again. He ascended to heaven where he is right now at the right hand of God. And just to kind of see that, let's just go for a minute. Let's go to Acts chapter 1 and look at that passage where we see his ascension. We'll start reading here at verse 1. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, or to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the one who descended also ascended far above all the heavens. Jesus' ascending into heaven speaks of his victory over his enemies. And as he ascended, the, the Lord, as the ascended Lord, he has authority to give gifts to his people. Having ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. John 16, verse 7 says, Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Then again in John 16, 13 and 14, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. 
And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so our ministries and our lives are more fruitful according to Jesus. They're, they're, they're more to the glory of God because Jesus has ascended to heaven and because he has sent the Holy Spirit. You see, without the ascension, there would be no Holy Spirit. There would be no body of Christ. There would be no spiritual gifts. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended to the right hand of God, the Father, the highest position of authority and power in the universe. And he is above, as our text says, he is above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. See, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. He is far above all the heavens, as our text says, which speaks of his sovereign rule over all. Just as he told his disciples after he rose from the dead, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So the purpose of his ascension, according to verse 10, if we go back to Ephesians Chapter 4 and verse 10, the purpose of his ascension was so that he might fill all things. So that he might fill all things. And this is really similar to Ephesians 1 and verse 10, which speaks of God's plan to, in the fullness of time, kind of at the, at the ultimate point of history where all things are going to be united in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus Christ has ascended to undo the effects of man's fall, to restore the universe to its rightful place under his rule. And phase one of this plan is Christ's headship and filling of the church. And so we see then in our text, Christ is the risen ruler, exalted above all. He is exalted, he is glorious, he is the Savior, and he is God himself. And it is this Jesus who gave us the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherd teachers to equip us for the work of ministry so that we could do the work of ministry as a church to build up the body of Christ. And this is to continue until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So this really sets us up then for next week when we're going to look at verse 11, um, probably 11 to verse 13. But for today, just want you to know that Christ is our gracious giver, that he is our conquering king, that he is our rescuing redeemer, and he is our risen ruler. And so we've seen the glory of Jesus Christ, the one who is the foundation of our unity. He is our unity. Our unity is found in him. And even our differences are because of him and designed by him so that we could be unified and walk worthy of our calling. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for who he is and what he did. We thank you for sending him to this earth again. We thank you that, that he accomplished our salvation, that he rose from the dead, that he is seated at the right hand of God. We thank you that he is coming again to rule and reign, that all, that he is going to fulfill what it, what is spoken in Ephesians 1 and verse 10, that he is going to unite all things in himself, things in heaven, things on earth, that this world is going to be restored 
because of what you accomplished through Jesus Christ. We pray that we would recognize him in the way that he deserves, that we would worship him in the way that he deserves, that we would live for him in the way that he deserves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.